Welcome to episode 24 of the Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and this is the Farmer's Daughter episode. And that was the theme to the 1963 TV show, The Farmer's Daughter, a show I'm too young to remember, which I realize is incredible that such a thing could exist. I open with that in honor of one of my favorite Facebook followers who blamed me for earworming her as I posted the teaser images for this week's episode, referencing The Farmer's Daughter. And if that follower is listening, I got you again. At least it beats being Rickrolled. In this week's episode, I interview Pete Pacelli, who, along with his wife Kate, a real farmer's daughter, runs an establishment called The Farmer's Daughter. I call it an establishment because it breaks the mold of what you, or at least I, would expect from an independent grocery store in tiny Capon Bridge, West Virginia, a town with a population of 350 people that's half an hour west of the thriving metropolis of Winchester, Virginia, population 27,000 people. But it's the kind of establishment you wish you had in your town. It's as if your favorite local independent coffee shop that invites you to relax and spend a few hours sold a full line of groceries and did whole animal butchering on site. I talked to Pete about the business of running this kind of store and the art of butchering. One of the ways Pete and Kate develop a community for their store is by running events in which customers can go behind the scenes and learn about their craft. We're lucky enough to take a sneak peek into one of those events as Pete butchers half a hog and walks about 20 people through the process. This is all part of the continuing series of my exploring my relationship with eating animals, and we'll talk a bit about where I am with that too. But first, rant. I love getting questions from listeners and readers, and this rant is brought to you by Crashman, who asks, Davey H., Growing up, we used to eat fruit and veggies that were in season because typically they were locally grown. Jersey tomatoes, corn, blueberries, even peaches are all a part of the summertime bounty. Fall were apples and pears. Winters were citrus from Florida and California. But now with the growing global trade, we're seeing summer fruits like melons, berries, and grapes, mostly from South and Central America. In addition to messing with my head, I'm not all that sure that health and growing standards in these other countries are as rigorous, and it certainly wouldn't come as a surprise if agricultural inspectors were bribed to allow substandard fruit and veggies from these countries to be allowed into the U.S. and sold. I suppose I should be less ambivalent since being able to eat fruit normally associated with summer all year round is worth getting excited about. But I'm not quite there yet. Stuck with an eating pattern that I feel no reason to give up, What do you think? Best regards, Crash. Well, Crash, it's a loaded and dense question. It's also dangerous, since when it comes to questions about food, I'm like the guy who, when you ask him what time it is, builds you a clock. And then he tells you how it works, gives you a history of time, plays the theme song to the show It's About Time, it's about time, it's about space, about two men in the strangest place. It's about time, it's about flight, traveling faster than the speed of light. Here is their tale of the brave crew. And eventually, may even tell you the time. Anyway, let's get past the political aspects of your question first. I have a fatal flaw that I always assume the best of human nature, and that inspectors taking bribes is the exception and not the rule. And if you look at the job ratings at sites like Glassdoor.com, these guys make a decent living with lots of overtime, and that leads me to my biggest concern. 
USDA inspectors are overworked, not over greedy. For greed, you have to look elsewhere, such as presidents past and current in Congress, all of whom are on the dole of Dole and other big food companies. Over time, in an effort to cut spending and to turn a blind eye to corporate malfeasance, the number of USDA inspectors continues to decrease, and their inspection effort is more about inspecting paperwork than it is about inspecting food. Given the current administration and its penchant for cutting regulations, we can expect this trend to continue. However, given the current administration and its antipathy for free trade, we can expect lower supply and higher prices for imported produce. So, to get me off my high political horse, the politics of this situation is probably the least important part of your question. The bigger question is in-season or all-season? Is there a difference? And it's a bigger question than you're actually asking because it raises the whole quagmire of imported or domestic, in-season or out-of-season, organic or conventional, and small local versus large corporate monoculture farms. The question of which is better depends on your values and how you prioritize concerns like taste, nutrition content, other health concerns such as dangerous pesticides and herbicides, sustainability, and social considerations like worker treatment. And this is a topic worthy of an entire Foodcast episode, because there's no slam dunk answer. In general, the best answer is buy local when you can. It meets the needs of most people. Let's look at local produce produce from the perspective of taste, nutrition, healthfulness, sustainability, and social considerations. Fresh produce tastes better. I don't think anyone would argue that an apple that's grown 50 miles away is going to taste better than one that had to travel 3,000 miles before coming to your door. Furthermore, the fresher the vegetable or fruit, the more of its amazing nutrition content is preserved. And that claim is bared out by tons of research. While most local small farms can't afford to pursue organic ratings, many of them allow organic principles. And while organic sounds nice, it's not always as nice as it sounds. And there are many cases in which the individual food choice may be healthier and more sustainable when opting for conventional over organic. It really depends on what you're eating and a whole bunch of other different questions. As I said, this is a huge subject that I could dig into more in a future episode if you, the listeners, are interested. Back to sustainability. Large corporate farms don't have the same incentive to maintain the land that smaller farms do. Corporate farms are in a position to move on once they're done surface mining the soil of their current fields. Because that is what they're really doing. They're surface mining the nutrients in the soil until they bleed them dry and then they move on. Small local farms are dead once the soil is depleted. Finally, there are social considerations which primarily is focusing on the rights of workers. While in theory both corporate and local farms have the opportunity to mistreat workers, you have a lot more transparency in the local farm. Taking this back to your question, Crash, local is almost always in season by definition. So my answer is, when you can, buy local, buy in season. If you need a banana or an orange, you're going to have to bend that rule. No problem. But there's still a huge variety of locally grown in-season produce to just about anyone listening to this, including those listeners from Germany, Belgium, and now Norway, which has become my number two audience after the U.S., no doubt because they've heard about Viking dinner. A great way to buy local is at a farmer's market or through a local community-supported agriculture subscription. 
The advantage is that you have line of sight to the farmer and can ask questions. Most major grocery stores do have local produce in their produce section, and they market as such. But the people at Giant or Stop and Shop or Publix or Kroger, they're usually better answering questions about the fruity cocoa puffs than they are about the fruit. Alternatively, you could find a small grocery store that aggregates from a bunch of local farms. They also encourage lots of questions and love curious customers. They'll even teach you how to butcher a hog, as you're about to find out in this next segment. When I first learned that I had the opportunity to interview Pete and participate in the butchering of a hog, I had mixed feelings. I love learning as much about food and the people who bring it to us as I can. But I also struggle with the idea of meat as a source of food. Make no mistake, I eat meat. I'm not someone who thinks that a vegetarian lifestyle is definitively the most healthy, sustainable, or even humane. But I am someone who worries about the immense amount of suffering built into our food systems. And so meat eating is something I'd like to reduce as much as possible. If I could become a vegan, hey, I think I would. Factory farms are clearly instruments of suffering. Suffering may be limited when choosing not to eat animal products, but it's not a binary choice between the two. It's a continuum. And my quest is to find out where on the continuum I lie and help you find your own spot. So when I found out about the opportunity to actually learn how to butcher a hog, I thought I'd better take it. What would be my reaction? Would I be my stoic self like when we dissected a fetal pig in high school biology? Or would I be like Jason Siegel's character in Forgetting Sarah Marshall? I gotta go prepping the pig for tomorrow's luau. You should come and help me. You know, take your mind off of things. Yeah? You don't mind? Oh. I mean, I, I must say, I, I'm a pretty good cook. All right. For the next 30 minutes or so, we'll bounce between the hog butcher demo and my interview with Pete. The demo's not in chronological order. I tried to align the parts of the demo with relevant parts of the interview. It's a little different format from what you're used to on the Foodcast, but what the heck? We were getting in a rut anyway. So let's start our, out with Pete introducing himself to the demo audience. Hey guys, thanks for coming tonight. This is our first public hog demo here at Farmer's Daughter. So right, today we're going to be breaking down a pasture-raised Berkshire and Lubeck Cross hog raised by Quicken Farms over in Shanks, West Virginia. So they raise exclusively for us at the moment. Everything is 100% raised on pasture. They're free to forage for whatever they like. Now they are supplemented feed throughout the year so that they can accumulate that, that mass that we need them to get to uh, finally make it to the butcher block here. It's, it's been really cool for us to work with them too because they have been wanting to get into farming on this scale for a long time and they haven't really had an outlet locally. And we were about to open the store and we didn't really have a source. Uh, so there was kind of a, a nice leap of faith for both of us in establishing our relationship and week after week, bring them in here. Use three primary tools. Um, 
We use a bony knife, generally between four and seven inches. Uh, it's a smaller knife, easy to maneuver. Uh, helps us work around bone and um, clean up steaks and roasts and things like that. And then we use what is called a breaking knife. Uh, it is a larger knife used for larger cuts. Um, so, for example, breaking a whole carcass into subprimers. And then for the, uh, the rough cuts, we use our trusty handsaw here. Uh, this is a butcher's cut. It's kind of got a tapered edge so you can get in between rib bones um, and, and saw through vertebrae and things like that. So those are primarily the three tools we use. Uh, we use some other knives here and there. But really, if you have these three items, you should be able to butcher most um, most four-legged animals, honestly. <laughs> uh, some people like to use a skinner to skin, but I find that a boating knife works perfectly fine. Um, and we, most of us here prefer Victorinox. It is a Swedish-made knife. Great bang for your buck. Um, this guy was about 30 bucks. Should last me about five years. We're gonna start. So this is our whole carcass. It is split. I'm gonna flip it around for you so you can see what we're working on a little better before I start breaking. So this is the whole carcass split right down the middle. So they first take off the head right at this ball joint and then they uh, use a saw and drop it right along the spine, splitting the feather bones in half uh, all the way down the spine through the tail and the H bone. So it really uh, exposes everything that we need to see in order for us to butcher efficiently. So the next thing we do is we remove the leaf lard. And this is that stark, white, good, hard fat that we render to make lard. Great for baking, um, well geez, just about anything. You can fry with it, use it instead of butter. Biscuits. Um, biscuits, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> It is. It's what we sell in the freezer. So we, we stockpile this usually for a couple weeks, so we have a large enough batch. And then we render it now. It takes about four or five hours on the low heat. And then we filter it through cheesecloth to, to get out any impurities. And what we're left with is that finished product of white fat. And the function of this being inside of the cavity is to actually keep the organs in the stomach warm. So that's the functionality behind it for the actual hogs. Okay, so we're gonna start cutting. And first things first, when breaking a hog, what we do is we take off the tenderloin. It's our most expensive cut, it's the most tender cut, pretty much on any animal. And it's, it's very unique, it sits on the inner part of the vertebrae. So a lot of our cuts are gonna be shielded or hidden behind bone, and this one is not. Some hunters will call it backstrap or inner backstrap, or the sweet meat on the inside um, in relation to deer. So we met our hog, we met our tools, and we made our first cuts into the hog. So now let's actually meet Pete, head butcher and co-proprietor of The Farmer's Daughter. Welcome, Pete. Thanks for having me, Dick. Why don't you tell me your background on what led you to open Farmer's Daughter? I started getting into food when I was in Portland, Oregon. I had just moved there in my early 20s and really fell in love with their food scene, how they put an emphasis on sourcing local, uh, how the quality was much higher, and how um, the food scene was so diverse itself. And from there, I discovered my interest in butchering particularly, 
and started moving forward with uh, self-education and trying to uh, land jobs at local shops and things like that without much luck. And then Kate and I actually moved to Asheville, North Carolina, where I landed my first whole animal butchering job uh, at a place called Chop Shop Butchery. Uh, I started on the counter working uh, part-time, basically selling meat, and then eventually worked my way into the back, producing sausage, doing some whole animal butchering, and then eventually co-managing before I left. And just so happens that butchering does run in, in my family. My grandfather grew up in a butcher shop in Holland. His father was a butcher. His father's father was a butcher. So it is something that is in our bloodline and did skip a couple generations until I picked it back up. Which inevitably made me think of the pivotal court scene in the movie My Cousin Vinny. Well, my father was a mechanic. His father was a mechanic. My mother's father was a mechanic. My three brothers are mechanics. Four uncles on my father's side are mechanics. You and Kate came back to West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And what actually led to opening the store? Well, I was working on opening a store in North Carolina, actually, and my partnership kind of fell apart uh, just before signing the lease, which I, in hindsight is a, is a great thing. It was before the lease, <laughs> and we had already appropriated a lot of funds to open up a store, and Tim and Beth, uh, Reese, my in-laws, had purchased a building in Cape and Bridge near their family farm and proposed the idea of us opening our store here. We were expecting our daughter, Josephine, uh, to be born about six months after the proposal, and it just seemed like a great fit to move closer to, to both of our families and, and provide fresh food in an area that doesn't often have that readily available. Could you expand a little bit about what it's like around Cape on Bridge? Sure. We're about two hours west of D.C., right on the Cacapan River. It is very beautiful, rugged terrain. They say it's the gateway to the mountains. We are in a rural area. There are plenty of farms, but there's a surprisingly low availability on fresh, for fresh food in the area. A lot of West Virginia's livestock and produce gets exported to the metropolitan area. So our idea was to essentially just open up a small grocery offering fresh local produce, dairy, grains, and then a whole animal butchery program. Typically, in rural areas, the kind of services you're looking to provide is, is your farm stand. In urban places, the gentrified neighborhoods, you have some of the upscale markets that feature local food. Now, I've been to your store, and it seems like it's kind of in between there. So is that really what your vision is? It is. We are trying to provide quality products at, a, at an affordable price and offer a little bit of everything. We have heads of garlic for 50 cents a piece. We have potatoes for $1.25 a pound. And then we have high-end quality meats ranging up to $19.99 a pound. We, we kind of run the gamut, but we do want to offer a little bit of everything and, yeah, just kind of fill a void that's existed here since the big commercial supermarkets popped up. How do you identify the suppliers? We had a lot of help from my in-laws, you know, living out here for, for a while and farming themselves. They had uh, contacts in the area, and then we also had a lot of help from our local agricultural service agent which is Stephen Starcher for Hampshire County. He put us in contact with our beef farmer and introduced me to the slaughterhouse that processes our hogs. So we had a lot of help from the state ag department. This is a good segue into the discussion on the store suppliers. One thing was sure from the demo. The beautiful, rich red color of the meat on the farmer's daughter hog looked nothing like the pallid gray pork you find in the supermarket. And this came up as a topic of discussion in the demo from an erudite member of the audience. Right. Animal in general, 
does not look like the other white meat that we would get in a <laughs> <laughs> No, I never really understood that. It's, so, it's not so white. Um, wow, if it's, what's the difference? if it's, it's big egg in a... Yeah, yeah. A lot of it's big egg, yeah. yeah. These, these guys, they're loved. They're, their diet, too, has, is a major part of that. Um, most of the year, these, these dudes are out foraging for clover, um, acorns in the fall. But yeah, it, it should be nice and even red. They were loved until Tuesday. They were loved until Tuesday. And now they're being loved after Tuesday. Yeah, they're, they're still being loved. <laughs> and what kind of standards are you putting on the farms that are supplying you food? Well, we exclusively carry pasture-raised antibiotic and ad hominem free meat all raised locally. We are fortunate enough, you know, being in a rural setting where we don't have to go further than 40 miles to source any of our proteins. So our beef is coming from a town called Burlington, West Virginia, just over the county line in the Mineral County, um, 40 miles west of us. Then we've got our hogs coming from Quicken Farms. They are outside of Shanks, West Virginia, just about like 15 miles west of us. And then uh, lamb and poultry are actually raised on Taproot Farm, my in-laws farm, just two miles from the store. When you're buying whole animals, such as Pete and Kate do, you're driven to get as much revenue from the animal as possible. It's not solely an economic issue, it's also a way to show respect for the pig and for the producer. You heard Pete describe a small subset of the steps the folks at Quicken Farms build into the raising of their hogs. They're steps they don't have to do. They do it for the love of the animal and to make a better product. It's really important for us to use every bit of the hog, not just from a financial standpoint as a retailer, but for sustainability. This hog was raised the right way and we want to honor it in death as, as we did in life. So there is the head and I'm going to start by removing the kidney. Now some people and some cultures love the kidney. I'm not a big fan of it. It is full of uric acid, which you guys aren't familiar with. So I usually cut it out, and unless I have a special order for it, which, where we just give them away, it goes in the compost bucket. So we do try and compost a lot of our waste here at the shop. It ends up back at the family farm. Some protein goes to the chickens, and some goes straight to the compost. You said you give those away? The kidneys? Yeah, you want it? No, not me. We do, yeah, yeah we, we give the kidneys away. You want it? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, you want to wrap it up for them? Yeah, no problem. And usually we give away hearts. Sometimes we can use them, but we don't sell a ton of brawn. So now we've got our sirloin in its entirety. Uh, it's triangular shaped, a wonderful, tender muscle. And there's always a little gland hanging out in front. Now this is primarily what our waste consists of, our glands. Some people enjoy sweetbreads. And those are usually around the pancreas or a veal or a steer. But I haven't found any use for the hog glands yet. I guess we give these away too if you're, if you're brave enough. But mostly it goes to compost. You're doing a lot of the traditional things that people expect from a butcher shop that these days they're more used to seeing on TV than in real life. But you're going beyond that too. And it's not just sausage making, but you're actually curing and doing other meat processing on site. What led you to do that? Well, it's always been an interest of mine. I actually ran uh, the dry air curing program for the shop I, I started in in North Carolina. It's, it's really just trying to be more self-sustaining. So we, we try and use every bit of the of the carcass. 
and you can only do so much with certain things before you get to curing muscles to uh, prolong shelf life and also add some, some nice, interesting flavor profiles. Like our sweet capicola, for example, is, is a cut from the shoulder that we then brine to help cure it and then smoke cure it as well. So we take something that has a fresh shelf life of about seven days and uh, increase it to about 28 while, while drastically changing the flavor profile as well and creating, in, in my opinion, a, a tasty product. And it's not just your opinion. You've recently been recognized for that. We have, yeah. We, we just recently won two national awards for uh, two of our charcuterie products, our Sweet Capicola that I was just talking about, and our Pate Campagna recently received Good Food Awards just last month. Congratulations for that. Thank you. Our demo included samples of the Pate Campagna, the Sweet Capicola, or as Tony Soprano would call it, Gabugu, as well as Tasso Ham and some other really delicious treats that they make at Farmer's Daughter. I'm not a big pate lover, but the pate companion was really good, as was the capicola. I think the tasso ham was my favorite. Maybe they should enter that next year. We use all of our livers for our pate companion, which we have sampled over there. If you guys want to snack a little bit, in fact, we have a hard time keeping up. But some of those other organ meats, we have a hard time moving. So we generally try and repurpose them in the form of How long ago was that slaughtered? This was slaughtered on Tuesday. They hang it for two days, and it was brought to us yesterday. So that condition, do you use a, an electric saw, or how do you... They use an electric saw to split down the The reason they let it hang for two days is so that it properly sets up, and what that means is that the muscles have time to stiffen and allow us to easier, easier manipulate the subprimals when we break it. it. It's much easier to cut chops and roasts if you don't have any play in the muscles themselves. This one was 283 pounds. It's slightly on the larger scale for us. We prefer them right at that 250 mark. Let's talk a little bit about your customers. What's a typical customer like? We have a very diverse customer base. We have a lot of local folks from Cape and Bridge and, and Hampshire County here that frequent our store and do general shopping. And then we also have a contingency of weekenders from the Northern Virginia and D.C. area that have secondary homes or mountain cabins things like that out here. So I'd say it's about 50-50, country folk to city folk. And we seem to be providing something that everybody's interested in, in, in some capacity. We have something for everybody. And is there anything you wish they would do more of that they're not doing? Well, not necessarily. Sometimes I feel like people aren't so familiar with a whole animal butchery anymore or speaking to a person behind the counter. I would just encourage first-time customers to ask questions. You can gain a lot just from picking the brain of a, of a butcher and, you know, we can we can walk you through it to make sure you get the, the right cut for, for the dish you're preparing or just to simply inform you of cuts that are available. I mean, we offer certain things. Being a whole animal butchery, we offer certain things that some folks haven't even seen or even older folks haven't seen in, you know, 50 or 60 years just because they never hit the shelves anymore. So I would just say, yeah, sometimes I, I wish my customers would ask a few more questions, but for the most part, everybody's fairly inquisitive. That's the advantage of shopping at a store like yours is the opportunity to talk to people with expertise and a personal knowledge of the animal. Totally, yeah, and it really helps with us selling products day to day, you know, and we're only here to help. So usually when people purchase a product, they go home and they enjoy it. Nine times out of ten, we see them back in here. And that's the real advantage to shopping local and at a store like Farmer's Daughter. If you're the curious sort at a good butcher shop, you can learn more about the cuts you know, and you can learn a few secrets. So now that we've made, we've taken off our tenderloin, we've got the whole carcass pretty much still intact. 
and we're going to separate this whole primal into subprimals, uh, essentially. So taking this large, big piece of the hog and breaking it into smaller, more manageable pieces of the hog. And we're going to start top to bottom here tonight. We're going to start with the, the shoulders. And the shoulder is pretty much comprised of two different parts. We've got the Boston butt on the top and the picnic shoulder on the bottom. The name behind the Boston butt, I've heard several different things. The story I like the most, and I like to believe is true, is that it was given that name in like colonial era America because we were England's largest supporter of pork. And it's a shoulder cut, and the butt of your rifle would rest up against your shoulder there. And there were two major ports on the East Coast that shipped to England, Boston and Charleston, South Carolina. So they got stamped on the barrels, Boston butt. That's what I've always heard and chose to believe. I'm sticking with it. So I like that one. So what we do is, it might look like an arbitrary um, break, but I'm going to explain why we do it here. We're going to count down between the fifth and sixth rib. And that's kind of where the shoulder ends and our loin and belly begin. So right now I'm going to make my count. One, two, three, four, five, and six. And I'm going to make a little mark, so I don't forget, splitting the fifth and sixth rib. Probably show you guys there. I just made a little a little mark between the fifth and sixth. And then this is our first saw cut of the hog. So we'll get our, our saw here, and I'm gonna split the vertebrae. We go right through the feather bones. And then I'm gonna come down between the fifth and sixth again, and make a little cut on the start. And now we should be through all of the bone that is keeping us from removing the shoulder from the loin. So now for these big cuts, remember we like the breaking knife. You always want the tool for the job, and I was always pretty much taught, try to use a knife that is bigger than what you're cutting. So we wouldn't want to get in there with a boning knife and force it. So I like to put a little bit of pressure to kind of open it up. And what I like to do first is remove a cut that you don't really see very often anymore in uh, commercial grocery stores or really outside of whole animal butcher shops, and it's called Secreto. It gained that name uh, from its popularity in Spain. Chefs kept putting it on their menu, and everybody wanted to know what it was, and they wouldn't tell them because they didn't want their competitors to get all of it, so it was a secret. They called it Secreto, but it's essentially pork skirt steak, and it sits right above the spare ribs and the belly. And it's got a pretty clear definition. We've got it, it is this darker colored cut that resembles beef skirt steak that kind of works its way over and across uh, the drop line of the hog. And you sell that here? We do, yeah. We like to use it a lot of times, stir fries, uh, marinate it, fajitas. And now you know the secret of the secreto. There's all sorts of stuff your butcher's gonna know, so be curious. Back to the interview though. What would you say has surprised you the most about the process of opening the store? Wow, I didn't quite foresee us having so many weekenders frequenting the store. We knew there was a group of, of folks from the metropolitan area that would come out here every now and again to either, you know, see the leaves changing colors or have hunting cabins or things like that. But I didn't realize what a large percentage of uh, our customers would be traveling from out of town. I've got regulars from not just the Northern Virginia area, but the Shenandoah Valley. Favorite customer of mine, John, comes up from Edinburgh every couple of weeks, which is about an hour drive just to shop at our store and support the local slow food movement and grab some quality eats. 
Have you had to change anything, or has that driven you to change anything from your original vision? Yeah, we, we've put more of an emphasis on prepared foods than I had originally planned to. They sell very well for us, and we are using some of these mid-range cuts that people aren't so familiar with. So it's a great way to introduce those cuts to people if we prepare them ourselves in certain dishes, soups, or um, sandwiches, and things like that. So yeah, that's been a much bigger part of our business than I had anticipated. So you're serving as a kind of a gateway to people eventually experimenting with cuts that they feel are exotic. Yeah, we've, we now do prepared food three out of six days that we're open every week. And hopefully in the future, we'll be doing daily what are, the, what are the kind of prepared food options? Every Friday we do soups. It's a great way for us to use our bones to make stocks and then also help introduce people to like cross-cut beef shanks, which they may not be familiar with. So we do soups every Friday. We do a sandwich that rotates every Saturday. We actually have not repeated a sandwich yet. We come up with something new every week. And then we do Carolina-style pulled pork every Sunday. So what's your favorite part of running the store? I guess it's, it's two things, really. I, I get to do what I love. I, I absolutely love butchering. For some reason, I just enjoy it. always enjoy preparing food for people. Something very gratifying about that for me. And then one thing I've, I've really come to enjoy after opening the store that I didn't foresee being the case is I love cutting a check to my local farmers as opposed to somebody with a feedlot 3,000 miles away. It's just really gratifying to be able to hand it to a small local farmer that I know is going to put it to good use and, and keep doing the right thing and raising a sustainable, respectable product. It's been really rewarding for us. What do you find most challenging? I originally poised this question as what's your least favorite part of running the store, but what do you find <laughs> to be what do you find to be the most challenging? I think and I don't think it's specific to butchering or running a grocery. I think it's just small business, you know, it's it's a lot of hard work. You are the one that's responsible, not just for the product, but for your employees and everything. The detail is sometimes overwhelming. But I, I think it's it's that. Just the ins and outs of running a small business are taxing sometimes and Kate and I have a small child and I'd like to spend more time with her. So I guess the time that it consumes. But hopefully and we're getting to that point, you work hard enough and you surround yourself with good people so that you can get out of there more frequently and we're finally starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel there, taking some personal time. So I would I would just say the hours. It, it becomes taxing at times. But eventually it seems like you get through it. Product-wise, what's your favorite product to get customers hooked on? I would have to say it's our meat. We're offering something that maybe shouldn't be so different from the commercial product, but it is. Sometimes it's hard to explain, but I would say our meats in general, and, and in particular, our pasture pork and our dry-aged beef. And by dry-aged beef, I, I mean when we separate the carcass into subprimals, we age back cuts. And what, what we do during that process is simply age them in an open-air cooler so that they lose water content. And every day that the product loses water content, it, it gains a higher concentration of just beefiness, great beef flavor. Uh, and it actually, the enzymes in the muscle themselves help tenderize them. So that paired with our pasture-raised pork, which Ed and Becky Morgan of Quicken Farms have done a fantastic job raising. They get to forage for a significant amount of their diet, whether it's acorns or clover or whatever they're foraging, I think it changes the flavor profile of the, of the protein as well. Okay. So I'd say the meats. What do you see as the future for the farmer's daughter? 
we're hoping to just keep growing in this location for a while, and then the idea is to, to open up a secondary location. Nowhere specific yet. There's a few places we're keeping an eye on, but we've increased our beef production by about 50%. And in this last year, we've added staff members, and we're just going to keep focusing on the day-to-day here for, for the time being and continue to grow this business and keep our focus on providing a quality, sustainable product. So take care of your current customers and try and provide that same level of service to a bigger network of customers in the future. Yes, and while also expanding into events and classes like the one you attended the other night to help educate and promote the business. Based on your first experience with that class, it was very well attended. It also demonstrated the loyalty of your staff and just how they are into helping you reach your mission too. So that was a great experience. Thanks for that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we've been extremely fortunate with our staff. How can people learn more about Farmer's Daughter? We do have a website, farmersdaughterwv.com, and it will be expanded shortly to give a little more information about who we are and what we're about. You can check out our Facebook page, or you can drop in and pick the brain of one of our butchers. And I have links and all the other good contact information in the show notes for this episode, so people don't need to write anything down. And speaking of picking brains, there's one last segment to share from the demo. Pete was wrapping things up, but much like the kid in class who reminded teachers they forgot to assign homework, I reminded Pete that he promised to talk about the head. For the squeamish, other than the sawing sounds that you heard earlier, this may be the most disturbing part of the demo. If you don't want to hear that part, skip ahead two minutes. It's the part I really needed the most, though. We'll talk about why after Pete walks us through how they use the head. I think we're almost out of time, so do you have any questions? Can do something with the head? Oh, I can. I won't break the jowls at the moment, but I will get the skin shoes ready. This is, uh, this is our hog head, and yeah, we try and utilize every bit of the carcass, like we said. They still use a 22 at the slaughterhouse. I think you were scared when they tried it. You were scared? Maybe a little bit. Yeah, they cut off his eyelids. They have to. So he, looks, he looks a little frightened, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they still use a 22, close range. And what we use for this a lot of times is we either use it for two things here in the shop, head cheese or scrap it. And depending on what we use, we often have ears to play with, too. So what we do is we just simply remove the ears. And then we'll remove the snout as well. Um, so when we take off the snout, we make a little cut right above the nostril. And this is important to be really careful because my blade is right there. Now our snout is off. Just go in the dehydrator with the skin shoes. Or in the fryer. Or if we're making head cheese, we make sure we throw one ear in with the head cheese. And once it's cooked to pork tender, we julienne it very thin and mix it in. So it is in our head cheese. And from here, we remove the jowls first. And you can see the ribbons of protein in the jowl. A lot of people cure it just like they would bake. You can fry it in a skillet just like bacon. It's just going to be much fattier. Traditionally, it's actually used for seasoning. Or uh, Italians cure it for guanciale. They dry air cure it and slice it thin. And again, that fat just kind of melts. They're not the most tender to just sear, but braise, they're fantastic. We don't use the brain. We do use the tongue in both scrapple and head cheese. The brain is compromised with the 22 shot. And also, it would give our bandsaw hell to split. Doable, totally, but we'd probably go through twice as many blades. So since there's not much in there that's unused, we generally leave the skull whole. 
Hopefully you enjoyed learning from Pete about the art of butchery and the challenges and opportunities with opening a local fresh food market in a town with a small and diverse population. Whether intentional or not, Pete and Kate are creating the grocery store version of Cheers, a place where everyone knows your name and where they yell Norm when you enter the door. Which is kind of awkward when your name is Dave, or maybe even worse if it's Susan. My other goal for this trip was to continue my exploration on my relationship with using animals for food. Did this change my attitude? Well, I walked out of Farmer's Daughter with a cooler full of sweet capicola, pate campagna, Asian pork belly soup, a whole taproot farm chicken, because I still think chickens are assholes, and a jar of local honey. But just in case, I also picked up a container of nutritional yeast, a common flavor and nutrition enhancement used by vegans to get some extra vitamin B12 and to make food taste a little cheesy. I was expecting the butcher demo to turn me towards the veg side. As I experienced it, though, working with a decapitated half-carcass was still a little abstract, even more so than the high school fetal pig dissection. And the ongoing vision I have of happy animals growing on a farm, humanely slaughtered, beats many alternatives. I've discussed them before, so for the anti-meat listeners who are still curious about my point of view, check out the vegan episode of the Foodcast, episode 18. Or if you don't want to take the time because you're a stick in the mud who doesn't like to be entertained while learning, just reach out to me directly. So, after the demo, I wasn't moved. But in putting this episode together and looking at the pictures I took, which are on the show notes, and listening to the background noises in the head segment of the demo, I have to admit, I am now moved. Not moved enough to make major changes in my diet yet, but moved enough to be nervous about how I'll react when the food cast moves deeper into the supply chain and I visit a hog farm and slaughterhouse. Stay tuned. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the food cast. I want to give a gigantic thanks to Pete, Kate, and the crew at Farmer's Daughter for their hospitality and tolerance. They have their hands full. They don't need me sniffing around. I thank Pete profusely in the interview But in my butchering of the sound files to bring you this episode, I apparently tossed that part in the compost bucket. For links to contact information, pictures, and more, check out the show notes on karmasensewellness.com slash foodcast. Hey, there are still a few slots left for the Families Being Happy and Well weekend extravaganza that I'll be leading with Dr. Suzanne Nixon at Massanutten Resort in Virginia. Check out the karmasensewellness.com events page. It's under the About menu, if you want to learn more. And finally, if this is your first time listening to a foodcast and you want to learn more, check out some of the earlier episodes and consider leaving a review on iTunes. If you've been around a while and haven't yet had the chance to leave a review, let me know how I can help you make that happen. And consider sharing the fun with your friends. Enough plugs for now. Until next time, remember what your old friends Wendy O. Williams and the Plasmatics always say. Okay, baby, they're gonna